Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Today, we bring you a special hip deep episode all about the thing that makes the world go round. That's right, money, cash, moolah. <laughs> you know, that green stuff everybody's going crazy trying to get all the time? Let's not forget, music is a business. Every day, money changes hands as music is created, purchased, performed, and pirated. Here at Afropop, we've been covering the music of the African diaspora for decades, but today, we peek behind the curtain and bring you stories about the economics of that music. Today's episode comes to you in four chapters. Chapter one. Oh, wait, wait a second. I need to take this. Hey, Mambra! You sent me a check, eh? Yes, I know. It's a lot, but hey, my time is expensive. Okay? Bye. <laughs> Sorry about that. In chapter one, we find out how the cell phone is transforming the African music industry. If your song is really, really popular, it's funny, it's catchy, people want that on the phone. In chapter two, how economic competition between DJs created a whole new style of music in Colombia. So this is real kind of almost warfare that's going on uh, in arms race where the arms in question are good records. In chapter three, we tell the story of Africa's most infamous music lawsuit. And chapter four, imagining a world without copyright, a world called dancehall music. All that coming up on The Money Show, a hip-dip edition of Afropop Worldwide. I'm a poor man who needs some money. I'm a poor man who needs a job. I want money to buy cigarettes. I am hungry. I need some money. We start today's show on the African continent. I probably don't need to tell you this, but music is everywhere in Africa. But of course, it doesn't just grow on trees. You have to get out your wallet and buy it. More often than not, that means taking a visit to your local neighborhood pirate. A music pirate, that is. Looks like we found one here at a busy market in Kampala, Uganda. A music vendor stands behind a computer screen, scanning through folders of music he's downloaded from YouTube. Uh, do you have something from South Africa? For instance, uh, Jabulani? Yeah. That's our Ugandan report. Reporter, Leila Ndina. She's buying some music. I see something by Mariam Makeba. Can yeah. you listen to that? Mariam Makeba, yeah. That is Mariam Makeba. The vendor has got everything. South African classics, Nigerian hits, gospel, reggae, and of course, American pop music. And um, what do you have from uh, Rihanna? Rihanna. By the way, he's able to click on any song that I ask for in less than a second. This is breathtaking. 
It would cost about $10 to buy a CD in Uganda legally, but when it's pirated, it's not quite as much. And how much will that cost me? That will cost you 3000 3000 is a dollar and a half. Can't I bargain for the price to come down a little bit? <laughs> you can. You can, actually. What's the lowest that you can give me? 2000 2000 that's like a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you. I appreciate the discount. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like Leila got a pretty good deal. She's just one of millions of Africans who are consuming music every day, whether it's somebody buying a pirated CD in the market or a big corporation paying a musician for a sponsorship. There's a lot of money changing hands in the African music industry. So where is all that money going? To help answer that question... Uh, yes, we're recording now, right? We spoke with Alex Perulo. <laughs> My name is Alex Perulo. I'm an associate professor of anthropology, African studies, and ethnomusicology at Bryant University in sunny Rhode Island. Just kidding, it's not really sunny there right now. So that's good. Is that what you need? Perulo has been studying the African music industry for years. He says industry isn't exactly the right word for it. Some of the criteria that I would say are necessary for a music industry include the ability to have accurate statistics about the number of albums sold or the ability to track and monitor copyrights. Music industry? Well, Alex prefers to call it a music economy. Instead, there's a very thriving and dynamic music scene but it's based on a much stronger network of different people who are involved at every aspect of an artist's career. That can be the producer or engineer in the recording studio who work on their own, the managers of the artists who work on their own, the tour operators, and all these little pieces. Well, it may be more informal than in the U.S., but it works. Back in the day, Africans bought a lot of records. In places like Tanzania, at this heyday, 25 million albums would be sold in a given year. That's a lot of albums to be sold for a country of only about 40 million. Just as in the US, new technologies have shaken up the whole economy for music. But in Africa, it's not all about Spotify or iTunes. It's about cell phones. like Google like to talk about their strategies as mobile first. Well, in Africa, it's mobile only. That's Toby Shapshak, the South African editor for Stuff, a technology magazine. And he's right. Cell phones are huge in Africa. The continent has the fastest growing cell phone subscriber base in the world. Over the last 12 years, cell phone use has gone from just 2% of the population to about, listen to this, 70%. A lot of people uh, struggle with electricity, but nonetheless, you still have a phone that you can use, that you can be anywhere. Predominantly, cell phones act as the contemporary radio, the contemporary means for circulating, recording, doing everything with music. It's all on the cell phone. Africans are storing songs on their phones, listening to songs through cell phone speakers, and trading their favorite tunes with their friends over Bluetooth. Listeners are going to markets with memory cards or cell phones, connecting them to computers, and downloading hours and hours worth of music for very little money. 
Thanks to piracy, most African artists have accepted that making money from physical music sales is a lost cause. Instead, they've embraced social media and internet video as a way to attract listeners and potential corporate sponsors. What the artists do is they put the songs out there for free downloads. Ovio Fugara works for NotJustOK.com, Nigeria's biggest music website. They put it out there for free downloads, like through my website and a few others. And then with that, their name goes out, the song goes out, it gets viral, and then they make their money off of shows. Ovi says they get about 150 songs emailed to them every day. The tracks he chooses to feature often go on to become hits in Nigeria, like this track, Aye, by Davido. Nigerian music videos these days usually have a very high production quality. Some are all about money and fancy cars. Others, like the one for this song, depict traditional village scenes in beautiful HD. So when you see our videos, you could still see people popping bottles, you know, see women and stuff. You see the regular pop culture, but you could also see what, what Africa is about, what is deep-rooted in the culture of the people. There's another option for making money, which also has to do with cell phones. Here's ethnomusicologist Alex Perulo again. So, for instance, the biggest market for uh, music these days, particularly in Kenya, is through ringback tones. Ah, the ringback tone. Well, it's the song the caller hears instead of the typical ring. It's a big business on the continent. So I think it's more like, hey, look at me, I'm hip. When you call me, this is the song I'm listening to. Moses Mbasu, a.k.a. Buddha Blaze, is a talent manager in Kenya. If your song is really, really popular, it's funny, it's catchy, people want that on the phone. Ringback tones cost about one cent per day per song. And for rural Kenyans, this amount of money matters. But how is this working for our artists? To find out, I called up my friend, Octopizo. Hello. He's one of Kenya's biggest hip hop artists, and yes, that's his own song on his ringback. He says, well, it's difficult to calculate how many ringback tones he's sold, but for him, well, it's as if he's sold none at all. You make nothing in ringback tones. Octopizo says he's never made a cent in royalties from ringbacks. Buddha Blaze says it's an issue of too many middlemen. There's the, the company that, that sells the ringtone, and then you have the aggregator, which is the middle company that is in between, and then there's 10% to the company that's holding the ringtone. By the time an artist really makes money, they must have a really big hit. They, their hit must be humongous. It's a bad deal for the artists, but they really can't do nothing about it. It's the cell phone companies that, that run the show. Of the money Octopizo does make, he estimates only 1% comes from royalties from Radio Airplay. But the big moolah comes from corporate sponsorships. Can't 
got an endorsement from like Coca-Cola, the biggest like phone network in Kenya. It's called Safaricom. You're hearing Octopizo performing at the Safaricom event in Kenya. Safaricom, by the way, is the same company that has not paid him any royalties for his ringbacks. But they will pay him lots and lots of money to put his face on their advertisements. Here's Buddha Blaze again. Whether it's a tea company, whether it's an oil company, many artists who are making millions in Kenya survive off corporate gigs. Still, ethnomusicologist Andy Eisenberg says even though artists like Octopizo are not getting money from ringback tones, they could end up better off in the end. That's because the success of ringbacks is pumping money into Kenya's music industry. Safaricom is bringing a lot of investment. There are these new firms called content providers. They compile the music, they aggregate it, and they deliver it to Safaricom's platform. It may be too soon to know what these newcomers will mean for the future of African music, but Eisenberg thinks that in the coming years, Africa will pave brand new directions for how music is consumed and monetized. And so the idea that the same kind of digital technologies that seem to be spelling the demise of the music industry in the global north that allow for widespread sharing and what some would call piracy, those same technologies are going to allow the music industry in Sub-Saharan Africa to flourish. And when one industry grows, it can turn into a domino effect. The music is not only the music. Our friend Buddha Blaze again. Imagine the, the industries that are created at this television, radio, production. We got people making money out of just tents for events. You know, we were just talking about different possibilities that the music industry has been able to create in Africa and add money into the economy and create jobs. Okay, it's time for chapter two of our program. As we've been hearing, music can create these big and complicated economies around it. But sometimes it's the other way around. It's the economy that creates the music. For example, take Champeta, hot sound system culture of Cartagena, Colombia. Our producer Marlon Bishop picks up the story. Listening to Champeta at a sound system party in Cartagena on Colombia's Caribbean coast isn't just for your ears. It's a full body experience. Or so I'm told. When you go to a champeta dance, you can feel your sternum rattling inside your inside your ribcage. This is Michael. My name is Michael Birnbaum Quintero. He's an ethnomusicologist at Bowdoin College, specializes in Colombian music, and he's gone to his fair share of champeta parties. It's an experience not only of listening to music, but of, of, of kind of feeling it coming out of your own chest cavity.
wanted to speak with Michael for our money show because he has a theory about champeta. He says champeta isn't a genre of music. It's an economic system. We'll explain what he means by that in a minute. But what you hear at a champeta party isn't one particular type of music. It's a whole constellation of sounds from around the world. Champeta is actually any kind of music that's played on a sound system. Congolese sukus. South African bakanga. Trinidadian soca. Haitian music, compa. Brazilian samba. We're talking popular dance music from all over the African diaspora, and sometimes beyond. Michael remembers listening through a champeta CD he bought on the street and finding a Hindi-language version of the 1980s cutting crew ballad, I Just Died in Your Arms. All of a sudden, there's this techno beat and people singing in Hindi, and I almost fell out of my chair. I didn't know what was going on. But my suspicions were confirmed that champeta is indeed a cosmopolitan music. Music tastes in Cartagena are extremely multicultural, and it's been that way for over 50 years, since before the world music industry was even invented. The way that this happened is itself an interesting story. The story begins in the 1960s, in the rough, working-class neighborhoods that surround the old colonial city of Cartagena. So people in these working-class neighborhoods would get together some money and buy a record player, or as it was called during that time, a pico, which is from the borrowed from the English pick up, because you have to pick up the needle in order for it to play. And so these DJs would go around, and they have their record collection. And what happens is that a lot of people realize that this can be lucrative, and so the competition gets heavier and heavier. All right, you might remember from your Economics 101 class that competition is what drives any market economy. So in this case, I want you to hire my pico instead of the other guys, so I need to make mine better than his. That economic competition is going to make a lot of things happen. One thing that they do is they start getting louder and bigger. As they start getting louder and bigger, they start adding all kinds of different details. Uh, Lights, they start painting the speakers, they start adding more speakers. And by the time you get into the 1970s and the 1980s, some of these things are physically gigantic. I mean, like the size of a small house. Soon the picos were all as big and as loud as can be. And they needed to find new ways to get an edge over each other. DJs started looking for music that other DJs didn't have. And out of this came a a kind of institution called the Exclusivo. The Exclusivo is a record that nobody else has. It's the ace in the deck, the killer app of Champeta. This is Manuel Reyes, a Cartagena radio personality and a longtime promoter of Champeta culture. He explains that the Picos would take the competition to the next level and stage battles. 
Tupicos would set up speakers and try to win the affections of the crowd with their music selections. If I have more exclusive records than the other guy, says Manuel, I'm the champion, and I'm going to get all the gigs because I'm the most popular Pico in the neighborhood. Putting it a different way, the exclusivo boils down to another Economics 101 concept, supply and demand. If my pico is the only one that owns a record and people really want to hear it at the dance, that song has a low supply and a high demand. And I am going to make some money. And so, in the quest to find the most exclusive records of all, the picos looked across the sea. They hired sailors who worked on cargo ships in Cartagena's ports as correspondents with the mission of finding the freshest records on the planet. They scoured record stores in places like New York or Paris and brought back LPs from Haiti, Ghana, Congo, stuff they couldn't get in Colombia. As a result, these international records that were barely known outside of their home country became hits in Cartagena. People must have really just freaked out at this new and totally interesting, amazing experience. And of course, the other Picos scrambling to figure out, oh man, what was that? Where did that come from? How can I get that? Of course, DJs didn't want other Picos to get a hold of their exclusivos. So they'd scratch the labels off their records so no one else could find out the name of the songs. Sometimes they would even get their correspondents to buy up all the available copies of a record in order to stop another Pico from getting their hands on it. So this is real kind of almost warfare that's going on, uh, an arms race where the arms in question are good records. When you think about it, it's pretty amazing. Before the internet made every song on the planet a click away, these Colombian sailors were on this global treasure hunt for the best music. These are people that live in houses that are built on stilts, that don't have running water, that don't have electricity, and at the same time, they are participating in this global circulation of music. These were sounds that weren't even being heard in the cosmopolitan capitals of New York and, and Paris and London and Tokyo. But competition in Champeta doesn't stop there. A Champeta DJ's arsenal is based around Exclusivo Records and giant speakers, but it's not complete without a little tiny keyboard. The Casio SK-5. The Casio SK-5 is a cheapo toy keyboard from the late 80s. The Casio SK-5 has a, shall we say, very distinctive bank of sounds. For example, there's a dog bark slash laser blast sound. It's hard to tell if it's a dog or a laser. There's this bongo hit sort of sound, uh, which is kind of, you kind of have to hear it. I can't really describe it. The SK-5 and its sounds became completely indispensable to Champeta. A big part of the appeal is a special feature where you can talk into the keyboard and it will sample your voice. You could send a shout out to someone through this keyboard. For example, if you say... El abuelito arrollador. El abuelito arrollador. The steam rolling grandpa. El abuelito arrollador. So you speak into this keyboard 
the steamrolling grandpa, and then you're able to reproduce that by hitting the keys in a kind of rhythm that goes along with the music. So a champeta DJ will take an old-school African recording like this. And after he gives it the SK-5 treatment, it might sound like this. Outsiders, these editions might seem of a questionable musical value, but people love them in Cartagena. It's thought of as a way to remix the music, of giving it a personal flavor. The thing is, Casio stopped making the SK-5 at some point, and this is where supply and demand comes in again. That's Manuel Reyes, the radio guy again. The Casios were in short supply, so when he would travel outside of Colombia, he would always be on the lookout for SK-5s. People will pay a lot of money to get a Casio SK-5. On one such hunt in New York, Manuel found a trove of Casios in a used electronics store in Harlem. He said he brought over a hundred of them back to Colombia over the years. So we have DJs, record correspondents, and keyboard brokers. But that's just the start. The champeta economy touches seemingly every corner of barrio life. Take, for instance, the buses. Picos have partnerships with bus owners where they'll give the driver an exclusivo to play on the bus and attract customers in return for advertising the Picos parties. Then there's a whole economy around guys who record placas, the booming sound bites that proclaim a Pico's superiority to all others. So when Michael Birnbaum Quintero says that Champeta is an economic system, he means this. Champeta is really an economic relationship between different people. I mean, what the Pico is, is, uh, is a way for different kinds of people to make money together. So the Pico owner, the DJ, the bus driver, Champeta is a way of orchestrating the individual hustles of all these characters. The interesting thing is that the end result of this intricate economic system isn't really anybody making a lot of money. Sure, you can improve your standard of living a little bit being part of this economy, but Michael says the money itself isn't really the point. It's just the means to get the thing people really want the most. The economy of Champeta is an economy of prestige. In other words, it's really about being cool and respected in your community, being proud of yourself. People will say, I'm from X neighborhood where X Pico is from. And there's a real kind of 
pride and prestige and, I guess, street cred that comes out of being part of the network of a pico. Take, for example, the owner of a pico, when he walks into his party, the DJ on deck will make a sample of his name and play it on giant speakers to a huge dancing crowd of his neighbors. What this man bought when he put the money into the making of this pico was not only investment that was going to make a particular kind of return for him, but it was the experience of hundreds of people, thousands of people dancing to his name. These are people who in other parts of their lives don't have power. They don't have political power. They're the most marginalized members of society. These masses of people who live outside the beautiful colonial city who are in a struggle for survival, a daily struggle for survival in order to have what they need in order to be a part of the world. And for them, being a part of the world is being a part of the Champeta system. I mean, I'm sure Champeta fans in Cartagena would like very much to have more money. But what Michael's saying does make you think about how culture and economics and our deep human need to be proud of who we are are all interrelated. They say money makes the world go round, but maybe it's not the only thing keeping the record spinning. La Mala Hierba, a Champeta by Sergio Lignan. By the way, we asked Manuel Reyes to record a Cartagena-style placa for Afropop Worldwide, just in case we decide to start a Champeta sound system one day. Aquí suena el mejor programa del mundo, Afropop Worldwide, lo mejor de la música afrocaribeña en la ciudad de Nueva York para todo el mundo entero aquí está con ustedes Afropop, el mejor programa del mundo <laughs> Not bad, eh? Well, I think we should do it our full interview on Champeta with Michael Quintero, visit afropop.org. And we have a lot of other exclusive online material related to this show up on the website, so don't miss out on it. Coming up, the story of an African song that made millions for American record companies. And what would music be like if copyright didn't exist? We go to Jamaica to find out. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Okay, we are back. 
For chapter three of our show, we're going to look at the relationship between African music and foreign business interests. Over the last century, African music has sometimes made huge profits in the West, while the musicians who created it made next to nothing. The most famous case of all starts in Johannesburg in the late 1930s. A cappella groups had sprung up across South Africa, battling for prizes at weekend parties known as tea meetings. One of the most popular groups was the Evening Birds, fronted by their charismatic lead singer, Solomon Linda. Before long, the Evening Birds were noticed and brought in for a session at Gallo Records. One tune stood out, a song inspired by chasing lions away from the family farm, Mbube. Over four bars at the tail end of the tune, Solomon Linda invented the melody that would change history. And this is when the magic happened. Mbube was a hit, the first African record to sell 100,000 copies. In fact, the song was so popular that the whole genre came to be known as Mbube music. A few years later in New York, the downtown folk scene was taking off. Pete Seeger and the Weavers were a local fixture. Pete was home one day with a cold when his friend Alan Lomax came to visit. Lomax, already an accomplished folklorist working for Decca Records, had just rescued a box of African 78s from the garbage. He thought Pete might like to hear them. Seeger was fascinated. He set out to transcribe the song but couldn't understand the words. The evening birds were chanting Oyimbube, but Pete heard something more like a whim away. Wimuwe is a real African song. It's not an Afro-American song, except that I accompany it with a more or less American-style accompaniment. I learned it off a record from Johannesburg. It was a pop hit down there in the mid-40s. Solomon Linda and his original Evening Birds. A quintet, two basses, two tenors, and one split tenor who sang falsetto. I got hold of the record through a folklorist, Alan Lomax. It's a great piece of music. It's an old Zulu song, which uh, Solomon Linda changed only slightly uh, for his own version. Oh, we move it, oh, we move it. 
Seeger was right about one thing. Wimaway, as he called it, was a hit in South Africa, but it was not an old Zulu song. It was a Solomon Linda original. This fact became crucial decades later, as profits began pouring in. In 1961, a doo band called The Tokens covered the song. It hit number one on the charts. Today, there are at least 400 recordings of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. This one by Dora the Explorer is cute. But let's not forget the UKF dubstep version. Or the Celtic Batpipe rendition. Mambo Lion. And of course, they are Lowe schlaft heute Nacht. By the early 90s, the song had earned at least $15 million in royalties. Wow. But in 1994, a cartoon warthog would take the tune even farther. I can't hear you, buddy. Back me up. The Lion King was one of the highest-grossing animated films and animated film soundtracks of all time. So, how much of this profit did Solomon Linda see? Ten shillings and a job sweeping floors in the Gallo Records warehouse. He died a pauper in 1962 just months after The Lion Sleeps Tonight hit number one in America. His family, destitute, could not afford even a headstone for his grave. But where did the money go? Well, as was customary in Johannesburg at the time, songwriters received no royalty, copyrights, or contracts. When Pete Seeger recorded Wimoway, Gallo traded the copyright of Mbube to his publisher, Folkways, for a pittance. When the tokens did their version, Folkways decided to cover their bases and doubly secure the copyright from Solomon Linda's family. The recording industry was very new in South Africa at that time. You know, it was in its infancy in a way. That's Owen Dean, a South African lawyer and professor. He says that Folkways' lawyer convinced Linda's family to sign their copyrights away by pretending to work on their behalf. In 2000, South African journalist Rian Malan published a story about the fate of the Linda family. Disturbed by the bad press, Gallo Records 
reached out to Owen to see if he could secure the family some reward. I was not terribly hopeful because all of these events had taken place a long time previously. There had been an out-and-out -out assignment of copyright. That's the end of the story. You're out of the picture. But working late one night, Owen remembered an arcane piece of British imperial law that said copyright would always revert to the owner 25 years after his death. Owen set about to contact Solomon's three living daughters. The youngest was a nurse, the other two household servants. Many people had been to see them in the past and had made all sorts of promises to them. And so as far as they were concerned, I was just yet another one in these sort of string of people who came along offering help and empty promises. And so they really didn't attach much value to meeting me, I don't think. Once he secured their trust, the next step was to make a plan of action. They looked around for the highest profile defendant they could sue and decided on Walt Disney. But Disney insisted Mube was a traditional song in the public domain, so no rights had been infringed. But I, in the meantime, had discussions and consultations with a Zulu musicologist, and he was quite confident in the view that Mbube was by no means a traditional song. After a three-year legal battle, the family was awarded a lump sum for all back royalties since 1987, 25 years after Solomon's death, and ongoing royalties for all future uses. This is a recording of Solomon Linda's children and grandchildren singing Mbube just a few years ago. A happy ending. But many African artists operate outside the machinery of the Western music business and have no recourse when their music is taken. Can you guess this tune? Sounds familiar, no? Well, if you said Herbie Hancock, Watermelon Man, you're close. But this is a field recording by Babenzele Pygmies of Central Africa. It was actually Bill Summers, his drummer, who found it and then blew it on a beer bottle and so on. There were no payments made. Herbie Hancock, in fact, said, I don't need to have been there to feel a brother's kind of thing, some sort of pan-African allegiance, uh, which is an interesting statement. Martin Scherzinger is a professor at New York University who examines copyright issues in the developing world. What goes unnoted is that everything that followed from there, such as Madonna's use of the same thing in Sanctuary, was then monetized, right? It's here in your arms, I want to... And she co-credited Herbie Hancock, which is a you know, double irony since he didn't actually even find the actual sample, right? My
most music that is construed as being custom or tradition or indigenous is not given the same legal weight as the same thing that might happen in the West. It is as if once the word African comes in front of it, it's like an alchemy. The word suddenly changes meaning as if it were signifying some other space that was somehow non-modern. and it is treated like a raw material, like a resource to be extracted and then to be refined elsewhere. We just heard what happens when ownership of a song causes disputes. But in chapter four of our program, we take a different viewpoint and question the very idea of music ownership. It seems like a basic concept. Someone writes a song and they get to decide who gets to use it and for what. Plus, they get paid for each use. It's the basic notion of copyrights law worldwide, including in Jamaica. But Jamaican dancehall music has been flouting that idea since its very beginning. Our producer Marlon Bishop takes us into dancehall culture, where the law doesn't always sync up with what's happening on the street. Let's pretend for a moment that it's 11 p.m. on a Tuesday at a street dance in Jamaica. Vendors along the street are selling bottles of beer, cigarettes, and patties. Music pumps from the speaker walls. I'm so special, I'm so special, so special, so special. That's why I'm strapped with my father for a special. Boy, I pray me together, they want to chase like fatal. Thank I'm so special, I'm so special, so special, so special. The crowd is loving the song and wondering what the selector is going to play next. But when he does change the record, it isn't a totally different song we hear. There's a different vocalist, but the beat behind sounds the same. You might think that people would get mad or stop dancing, or that the selector would be forced to pack up his turntables in shame. But exactly the opposite happens. The crowd loves it. The energy gets even higher. What you just heard were different tracks by different artists, but they share something. The instrumental track, known in dancehall as a rhythm. Rhythms are so important in dancehall, they get their own names. This one's called Unfinished Business, and it's the basis for a lot more tracks than the ones we just heard. Unfinished Business! Man, no 
papi show boy, this one no fi no boy, yo. Boy said them a bad man. Did he fuck with something fit about? Did he achimite something fit about? Did he parasite something fit about? Cause them love use them all. Hypocrites know exactly yeah, what they do. Yeah, they them up, yeah. They worst nightmare. When a selector mixes the tracks live, it's known as juggling. You might hear the same rhythm going for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, but in that process, you might also hear half a dozen or a dozen different vocalists. This is Wayne Marshall. He's an expert on all things global and digital, and one of my personal favorite ethnomusicologists. People will say, oh yeah, you know, I know that rhythm. That's a great rhythm. You know, that's one of my favorites, and people would be happy to then hear new versions of it. Wayne calls that system the rhythm method. And it begins, as many things do, in the 1960s. Instead of having a live band, parties in Jamaica have long been centered on DJs playing records. At some point, those DJs began to interject over the records they were playing, kind of like a hype man. You must be lying. Recording studios, seeing that this was popular, began pressing up 45s with the song on the A-side and the instrumental on the B-side to give DJs more flexibility. And this changes everything. Soon, DJs are playing just those instrumentals at dances, and vocalists are coming up on the microphone to rap melodically over them. The first rhythms are the B-sides of classic reggae songs, but in the early 80s, producers start making their own digital rhythms. So one of the great examples in this vein, of course, is um, the slang tang rhythm. That was a sort of uh, a new dawn for the, for the rhythm system, where there was this brand new rhythm, brand new sound, uh, almost a whole genre shift happening, and everybody wanted to be on it. I was a producer who loved to create new things, and I like to try new things. And when I heard the rhythm, I said, this is a brand new sound. It's gonna go places, you know? That's King Jammy, one of the producers behind Slang Tang. He spoke to us over the phone from Jamaica. Jammy's instrumental was a mega hit. The online database rhythmguide.com lists 350 different songs made with the Slang Tang rhythm. Chances are there's even more than that. It's a robbery. Call the police for me. We have quite a few versions that were hits. And, you know, even call the police for me with John Wayne. That was a big hit. Booty Bye, Booty Bye was a big hit. You know, a lot more songs. I made myself, I made about three albums with the same thing, really. Now, the hundreds of artists who recorded over Slang Tang, most of them didn't get formal permission from King Jammy to use his instrumental or pay him a licensing fee for it. That's because copyright works a little differently in dance hall. There's this sort of shared knowledge that's circulating in this music scene. This is Larissa Mann. It's very much about circulation and repetition and reuse of fragments of music and whole pieces of music and instrumentals and vocals. And um, it's incredibly fertile and dynamic, but 
It's not based on getting permission. Larissa is a professor of media studies. She's also a working DJ, a really good one, who goes by DJ Ripley. And she's done a lot of work on copyright in Jamaica. Copyright, for the most part, is not being enforced. And when it is, it tends to go to the more elite people and the more powerful people. Jamaica does have copyright laws. But just because the law is on the books doesn't mean it's being adhered to. Larissa says this is because the law isn't really designed to benefit dancehall artists. Culturally speaking, the kinds of practices that the law recognizes best are practices that are very far from marginalized communities of all kinds. The whole idea behind copyright is that it's supposed to encourage creativity. Theoretically, if other people can just take your ideas and then go and sell them, you won't have the economic incentive to wake up in the morning and write music. But because of the way copyright is written, it works best with someone who is, say, a singer-songwriter who does a particular kind of creative practice in which you can identify an individual author and a sort of straight-line relationship between them and their work. If you have an oral tradition, a collaborative tradition, one that focuses on groups of people in relationship to each other, improvising spontaneously or drawing on traditions, copyright doesn't work very well. In 2009, Dancehall got a high-profile taste of this clash when Jamaican artist Vibes Cartel sampled the beat from Miss Independent, a song by the American R&B singer Neo. So Vibes Cartel gets that instrumental and records a very popular local hit on it called Ramping Shop. Ramping Shop is so big, it ends up crossing over into the hip-hop market in the States. And so it starts to get played quite a bit on Hot 97 in New York, and it gets added to rotation up there. And at that point, somebody at EMI gets wind of it, and they send Vibes Cartel a fairly serious cease and desist order saying, you know... You don't have permission for this. Permission will not be forthcoming. You need to, to destroy every copy on the internet. <laughs> right. Good luck with that. From EMI's perspective, Vibes was a copyright violator who stole the misindependent instrumental from its rightful owner. But in Jamaica, you know, it's interpreted as, oh, well, that was just Vibes doing his own thing on the misindependent rhythm. Thank God I got to put a roof over me. Hey, hustle, man, I hustle, can we want me daily? Bread. Hey, Miss Fatty Fatty, you a murder. Wayne says the fallout from Ramping Shop points to something fundamental about dancehall culture. So, you know, like it or not, once a pop song gets big enough, and if it resonates as the kind of thing that other people want to rap over, essentially, it becomes a rhythm. That's what's happened with the hit song Royals by Lord. Lord's Royals, for instance, uh, recently um, saw a spate of local dancehall versions. Um, Busy Signals, probably my favorite on that one. You could go so far as to say that Jamaica and dancehall have taken a creative commons approach to intellectual property, an open source alternative to the strict way we handle authorship in the United States. The more versions of a song, the merrier. That's how it is. The more the merrier, the cream rise to the top. The best ones rise to the top. That's Jassy Adaye, a Kingston-born and Brooklyn-based producer who's been in the music business for over 50 years. Always a combination of a building and what was before you and innovating, making new inroads 
to make it sound even more fresh and spilling off into other new stuff. It's always like that. Uh, and that's like the culture of reggae, it's not gonna change. As for the claim that a lack of copyright protection discourages creativity, well, Wayne Marshall says Dancehall itself is proof to the contrary. I think the evidence is just there. If you just look at four decades of Jamaican musical practice, there's no shortage of creativity there. In the absence of any actual real, you know, copyright regulation in Jamaica from the 60s into, you know, the new millennium, Jamaica was one of the most prolific, vigorous, vivid music cultures in the world. The amount of output that happened because of the rhythm system is as good evidence as any that a kind of sort of musical commons can work. That's all for today. It's been quite a journey. I hope you feel a little richer after all we've learned. By the way, we have a lot of cool stuff related to this show online. A mixtape of different versions of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. An extended audio interview with Kenyan artist manager Buddha Blaze. Plus more interviews and articles. You should really check it out. Yep. And speaking of money, time to give a shout out to our funders. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts that believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX member stations across the country. Thank you for supporting your public radio station. Now here's something to consider. Our educated, globally curious audience of decision makers and community leaders could be an excellent match for the goods and services of your company. 70% of public radio listeners think positively of companies that underwrite their favorite programs. For local opportunities, contact your station. For national, send us an email to sponsor at afropop.org. Thanks to Wayne Marshall, Michael Birnbaum Quintero, Alex Perulo, Moses Mbesu, Leila Ndinda, Manuel Reyes, Sebastian Cruz, Saxon Bear, Deadly Dragon Sound, the University of Cali, and Jamspot Studios for their help with this program. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Marlon Bishop. A big special thanks to our assistant producers for this program, Brianna Duggan, Joe Dobkin, and Ryan Kailath. Join us next time for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan. Benning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richmond, And I'm Georges Collinet.